You, you know, of all the things we do here together, that, what we just did there, may actually be the most important thing. And sometimes I want you guys to remember that whenever you're gathering together and you're um, just, whether it be at homes or Sunday school classes or groups like this or wherever you may be, just the fact that we're recognizing that we don't have this and we need God and that we are asking him to come here and be a part of all the, like, just don't underestimate just how important what we just did is. Um, it's not just something you do to get to the thing. It's the thing, right? It's the thing. So uh, thank you, Wayne, for praying for us. So we're, gonna, we're going to spend our time today finishing up Zechariah chapter 3. So the first week, the first week that we were studying the book of Zechariah, we didn't even get to Zechariah. Uh, the second week, we covered chapter 1. And just setting the context again real quick, you'll get tired of this, but, but making sure we got a couple new faces in the room. So setting the context, you know, the people, the Israelites have come out of Babylonian captivity. The Persians have allowed small batches of, of people to go back into uh, Jerusalem. You've got a small band led by Zerubbabel who goes back to try to rebuild the temple. They deal with all kinds of obstacles and, and resource issues and persecution, and they kind of languish for 16 years. And chapter 1, we talked about how, you know, while they were languishing and building the temple, what were they building instead? Yeah, their houses. And were they just kind of like basic houses, or were they putting some good detail into this? Yeah, they, they, they said they were, they were pallet houses, right? They, I mean, it means they were putting detail into this. They were really making sure their homes were nice and comfy and for, for in context of the time, relative to everything at the time. Uh, and then God's telling them, hey, hold on. I gave you a job to do. Return to me, right? Return to me. Trust me. There's something going on here. Put your faith in me. Uh, and then last week, um, we, we got our first vision, as we really talked about. It. And in this vision, God was really saying something important. He was making sure they knew that he was coming to dwell in their midst, Right? That he was that, that he was going to come back and that they would be his people again, right? That that it would be his holy land, that Jerusalem, that Judah, that you know, the, the, the nation of Israel would be set apart again. Uh, he would come again and choose these people. Right. And this this is huge, because right? you, you really have to put yourself back in the context of of these people. I mean, they they were God's chosen people for for centuries, they had walked under the knowledge that they are God's chosen people and a light to the world. And they had endured so much persecution and so many trials and had, had dealt with all kinds of empires that came and went. And they had lost a whole lot of their people. Can you guys help out with that back there? Get that to... Um, yeah, there you go. So they had lost a whole lot of their people. And, and so I can just imagine that these guys are, are, are sitting there after, we talked about last week, they walked all that way from Babylon to Jerusalem, uh, dealing with all the circumstances. I mean, it wasn't easy. These guys did not have it easy. Uh, but they're getting this vision that, that God's telling them, I'm going to be here with you again, right? This will be my place. I mean, the temple where, 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 where you would come and commune with me, like we're doing this again, I'm bringing you back. Some of these people had never seen Jerusalem before it was destroyed. Some of them had. Uh, but so he's trying to make sure they have this hope of what he is actually doing here. And so they get that message of hope. Uh, 
Uh, and then the next vision we, we get right after that message of hope is what I preached on a couple of weeks ago, which I'm sure all of you vividly remember every detail of that sermon, right? So I don't even have to cover it again, right? No, like you could probably all come back up here and reteach that lesson on my behalf right now because it was that important to you, right? So, but you get this next vision where you see a, a big change, right? So you get this vision of hope in chapter 2. Then the next one is Satan sitting there accusing the people that they're not worthy to be in the presence of God. God's saying, I'm going to come be with you. I will be in your presence. And Satan's like, they're not worthy of it. And then what, what does God do, right? He, he goes, I will make the way so that they can be worthy, right? I will take off that filth of them and I will put my own robes on them. And they will be worthy, for they will be my people. They are my children, right? So we see that scene uh, really play itself out where God is, is rebutting Satan's accusation. And then uh, further into chapter 3, and that's what we're going to cover today. We're going to cover the end of chapter 3. Uh, we're going to see some different visions pop up. Uh, that are really important for us to understand, that will kind of complete that narrative. And so what I want us to do today is I actually want to take this as an opportunity to kind of ingrain some lessons in our brains about how we study the Bible. Uh, because I don't want any of you all to be scared of the Old Testament in particular, or apocalyptic literature in particular. So you go through and you read the book of Daniel, or you read Revelation, you're going to see some weird stuff. Right? You don't need to be scared of it. All you have to do is learn how to decode the message. And so we're going to work together today with using the end of this chapter 3 to kind of decode this message so we understand what God's trying to reveal using this vision. So let me read. I'm going to read uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 6 through 10, and then I'll talk about the exercise we'll do. So, coming off the vision of the filthy robe uh, that I, I preached on, verse 6 starts with, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So, let's pause on this real quick. What's the command or the instruction that God's giving Joshua? Joshua being a representative of all of his people, right? So when you hear Joshua, think all of God's people, right? So what instruction is God giving them? Yeah, 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 walk in his ways. Be holy, keep my commands, right? Jesus says this later, right? If you love me, you will do what? Yeah, you will keep my commands, so we see that scene, and, and, and in my sermon, I kind of compared it to a baptism, right? The scene that just preceded this, where the filthy robes are removed and God's robes are put on, right? It's almost like our idea of baptism. And immediately after this, this, this would be enough of a lesson for today if we really want it. Immediately after you see those robes put on and you are made holy, it doesn't stop, right? He goes, now, now that you are holy, now that you are my child, right? Go, do what I told you to do. Right? Go, keep my commands. That's really, really important here. So it says then in verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, we're going to get into the apocalyptic literature, we're going to get into the, the visions here. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. I will bring my servant, the branch. 
For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So there are one, two, three, four, five, five terms that are used in this passage that I I found very meaningful to actually understand what God was trying to say. And what I want us to, to do is that when you come across terms in the Bible, a great rule of thumb is that you need to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, right? So if you find, like, if you remember a couple weeks ago where we talked about the horns, right? When you find the horns as a symbol used in the Bible, go elsewhere in the Bible and see what the horns meant, right? The horns were a symbol of power, right? All throughout the Bible, when you see horn, think power, right? So, so we can use just as a tool, Go find other places in the Bible that have the same wording, the same phrase. What did they mean? Uh, especially if you can find it in the same book. Even more important, if you can find it in the same genre. So like if you find, if you find prophets using the same words, that's great. If you can find it in the same testament, that's even better. But overall, it's all God's word. So anywhere we find the Bible, it's, it's helpful to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So we're going to do an exercise, and I want you to remember the table number I give you. Uh, guys on Zoom, you're table number one, table number two, three, four, back there, five. Then we're going to start over, one, two, three, four, five, one, okay? And here's what I want you to do. So I'm going to give everybody a phrase, and I'm going to have you go to read a couple Bible verses. I'm not going to make you find the Bible verses. I'm going to give you a couple verses that tie in. So table number one, so guys on Zoom and a couple tables, I want you to talk about what the word there in verse 8 says, I will bring my servant the branch. You see the branch is capitalized. It's a name. So I want you guys to look up. There's two verses to look up. The first one is Isaiah 11.1 and Jeremiah 23.5. So Isaiah 11.1 and Jeremiah 23.5. Read those verses and talk at your table and see if you can understand what God means by the branch based on those verses. For people who came to table 2, in verse 9 it says, Behold, on the stone. I want to talk about the stone. So if you're in table 2, I want you to look up Psalm 118 verse 22. And Isaiah 28, 16. Everybody got that? Make sure I'm not moving too quick. Okay. Psalm 118, verse 22. And Isaiah 28, 16. All right, then table three. It goes on to say that I've set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. Seven eyes. So if you're at table three, I want you to talk about seven eyes. I've got one Bible verse for you to look at. Revelation 5, 6. And then I want you at your tables to also talk about what does the number seven mean? What do you think the number seven means when you see it in the Bible? And hold on, ver, uh, table four, you're going to go to, I will engrave its inscription, engrave its inscription. So I want you to go to 2 Timothy 2.19 in the New Testament. And then lastly, table five, everybody raise your hand in your table five, table five. So you're going to talk at the very end. It says, I'm going to invite your neighbors to come under his own vine and fig tree. I want you to talk about vine and fig tree. 1 Kings 4, verse 25. 
and Micah chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. So read those. You guys spend about 5-10 minutes at your tables reading those passages to each other. Talk about it, and then we'll come back and I'll go through these. All right, well, let's, let's bring it back. Um, so I want to read, I want to read you a, a passage, and we're going to go through these. I just want you to remember, it's, it's so important to remember what these people were thinking at the time. They all, would have, they all would have known the Messianic prophecies. They all would have been holding their hope in the Messianic prophecies that came before them. And there's this passage in Isaiah that's talking about the Messiah to come and the, the time to come that's giving people hope that was written when the people had no hope, right? And, and so I just want you to, but they would have known this passage I'm about to read, and they would have been feeling it and hoping for it. So let me read you this. It comes from Isaiah 60, starting in verse 14. It says, The son of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall suck the milk of nations, you shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer and the Mighty One of Jacob. It goes on in verse 21 saying, Your people shall all be righteous, they shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified the least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord, and it's time I will hasten it. I will bring this to be. Right, so I just, I want you to remember just how much hope these people had in the Messiah to come, right? Because their life had not ever been good, right? I mean, just, I mean, uh, other than maybe under David and Solomon, right, these people have just been through it for generations. Just generations it's been difficult. And so they had so much hope. So as we get into this, I really feel like these, these different phrases that God uses here are really to help people solidify the hope, solidify what he's going to do. So the first one, going into the branch, Isaiah 11.1. 1. I'm just going to read this real quick. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Uh, and then Jeremiah 23.5 says, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What did you all think? Who was group one? You guys were one? What, what? Messiah, right? It's speaking of the Messiah to come, the branch. Anytime you see the branch, right, especially when you see a capital like it's a name, it's a, it's a proper noun, right, the branch is the Messiah. And so what's the Messiah going to do? It says God's going to bring the Messiah, right? So you remember the, chapter 2 had just been, I am coming, I will be in your midst, and I will bring the Messiah, the Savior. He's actually going to come. The stone, so for the stone, go to Psalm 118. I've got, I've, got my, I've got a whole system here for these. Okay, Psalm 118, verse 22. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Isaiah 28, 16 says, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. So who was, who was group two? What do you think the stone represented? Yeah. Anyone want to go? Out? I, look, here, here, there's, a, there's a rule in church. In church, if it looks like a duck... It talks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, but it's in church, the answer's Jesus. So, so if, you're ever, if you're ever afraid of what do I answer to say, pretty sure this is a reference to the Messiah or Jesus, right? Yeah, the cornerstone, right? So for you guys in construction, make sure you know, the cornerstone gets laid and it is the pinch point of which everything rests, Right? And so we see this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone, right, that comes and everything is built upon it. The church is built upon it, right? He is the great rock, the sure foundation, the cornerstone. And not only you see this idea of this stone also coming and being what? A, a, a stumbling block to those who don't believe. So we see that imagery coming through all the way back here in Zechariah. Now we get into the fun one. It says... Before behold on the stone, so the cornerstone, I have set before Joshua on a single stone, so single Messiah, right? Single stone with seven eyes. So Revelation 5, 6 says this. Let me find it real quick. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. Real quick, who's the lamb? Jesus quacks like Jesus, right? So I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. What does the horn represent? Power. Power. You guys are listening. Seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So Revelation actually interprets this a little bit for you, right? What does Revelation say the seven eyes are? The seven spirits that go out through all the earth, right? So, So whenever you... Whenever you think eyes, what do you think of whenever you think eyes? Seeing, knowledge, vision, right? Going out throughout all the earth, there's nothing that escapes the domain, right? There's nothing that escapes the sight, right? All things are under the judgment of of the Lamb. All things are seen. All things are known. Nobody is void of it, right? So I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Lord of the Rings, Right, in Lord of the Rings, the eye of Sauron, right? And, and the eye of Sauron comes through. But, but Sauron is not all throughout the world, right? Frodo can be further away, and if he's not in the eye, the eye doesn't see. So a lot of people here have never seen Lord of the Rings, I'm noticing. So anyway, <laughs> we'll move past. No more Lord of the Rings illustrations in this class. So, <laughs> but, but the idea of the eyes is that it's all-knowing, all-seeing, what did you all think the word set, uh, the number seven meant? Complete, complete. So here's, here's the trick whenever you get to numbers in the Bible. You're going to see a lot of numbers repeat themselves often. And I'm going to channel my inner Terry Fakes for this lesson, right? So, so because I've actually never read this in the book, so I'm just trusting that Terry's right. Uh, but I've heard him teach this a lot. So whenever you see the number four, it's a sign of completeness of what? Does anybody know the answer? Four is a sign of completeness as well, but a specific completeness. Any idea? Yeah. yeah uh, well, four, you'll see it kind of come through with the 40 as well. Four is a sign of completeness of earthly matters, 
right? So I want you to think about it. North, south, east, west, four corners of the earth, right? The idea there, anytime you see four, is in the physical realm, in the earthly realm, it's a sign of completeness. Think about north, south, east, west. It's the easiest way to remember that. Three is also a sign of completeness. What do you think, what do you think three is a sign of completeness of? Yeah, spiritual realm, right? So, so we see, um, obviously, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, whenever, back in the old Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have adverbs like we have adverbs. So if you wanted to say, adverbs not the right, maybe adjective, I don't know, I, I went to Kentucky public schools, so my grammar's not good. <laughs> All right, so let me say it this way, if, if I don't speak good, you know, so it's, um, so if you said it, if you said it this way, in, in the old Hebrew, you couldn't say, I am very hungry, right? Or I am really hungry, right? There, that, that, that very didn't exist. And so what they would do instead is they would repeat it for significance. So if I was like, if I like hadn't eaten in a day and I was very hungry, it's like I was hungry, hungry. If I had been fasting for 40 days, I was hungry, 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 right? And, if, and that, was the, that was the most hungry, right? Now, you see this in the Bible all the time, and you sing this all the time, right? Whenever you sing that hymn, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They don't say holy, holy, holy just because it sounds cool to say it three times. It's because it matters. Back then, holy, holy, holy meant the most holy, the holiest of holies, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So whenever you see three, that's always been a sign of spiritual completeness. Now, math majors in the room, four plus three equals? See, see, see this, is, this is where math matters, right? <laughs> math matters. Biblical integration into the classroom, math matters. So four plus three equals seven. So not only is it a sign of completeness of the physical realm and the spiritual realm, it's a sign of completeness of it all right? And so if we see this where it says seven eyes, it says all knowledge is under the Lamb. Not just the world, not just heaven. Heaven and earth that's under the Lamb's authority. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, the next one, engrave its inscription. Uh, I found a reference here in 2 Timothy 2.19. Let me read that real quick. 2 Timothy 2.19 says... But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Let the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from his iniquity. This engrave its inscription on the stone, right? On the cornerstone. I just want you to feel kind of the permanency of that. And I'm sure that's what you guys came up with, right? Uh, who, was, who was table four? What would you all come up with? Was that the idea? Yeah. That was, that was what it was? My bad. I didn't let y'all talk before I gave the answer. I'm sorry, guys. I'm getting, I tried to pray for Wayne. I'm just taking away your old thunder. But engrave its inscription, you know, this idea. Think about the book of life. Think about, think about the stone. Think about the Ten Commandments on the stone. Think about just when you put something in stone, it doesn't get erased by something. Right? I mean, I just want you to see that, that everything's under the authority of the branch right? Nothing's going to escape. And for you who are my children, right? I am writing that in stone, right? It's just such a comforting passage. And then we end 
And it says, in that day when the iniquity has been removed, when your name as a child of God has been written in the stone, right? when the cornerstone, the Messiah has come, when all these things have come to fruition, in that day, it says, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you, in verse 10, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So who had, let me read 1 Kings. I'd say I've got my order here. Okay, here we go. Look at that. 1 Kings 4.25 says, uh, 4.25 says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. Now, real quick, Solomon and David, two mighty kings of Israel. Which one of the kings was a wartime king? David. Right? It actually, God actually says one of the reasons he doesn't want David to build his temple is because he spilled too much blood. Right? David goes and conquers all the territories. He spills the blood. Solomon comes in in a time of war or peace. He comes in in a time of peace. Gets into trouble because he has too much time on his hands after a while, but he comes in in a time of peace. Micah, Micah, uh, four, three through five. Let me read this. And I remember all these, almost all of these things that we've done from the Old Testament are items that occurred well before the story of Zechariah, right? All of it happens before. So Micah, verse four, three through five says, "He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation." Neither shall they learn war any more, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one should make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. I just love that passage. Um, Real quick aside, there's a famous U.S. president who used this imagery in one of the most famous speeches ever given. Do you know who it is? Definitely wasn't Ronald Reagan, I promise. Any idea? Not Lincoln? See, whenever, um, every year, and I don't know what, I can't remember what day it is. It's probably his birthday, but um, the Senate will read Washington, George Washington's farewell address in front of, of Congress. And I'd encourage you to listen to Washington's farewell address. And I'm not going to get into politics, but it's a very wise farewell address. But in his farewell address, he talks about this imagery that, we should, that, that everyone will be able in this nation that has been created to sit under his own vine and fig tree. What does it mean? Who, who, was, who was team five? Own vine and fig tree. Safety, security, being at peace, being at rest, right? So, so when you see all these themes coming together, what you're seeing is, God is making it clear that he is coming, that he is there with his people, that he will send the Messiah, that their names will be etched in stone, that nothing will escape God's judgment. No, no matter all the nations that have risen and fall, no matter what persecution is going on, nothing will escape the eyes of the Messiah who will come. And in that day when he comes, you can actually be at peace. Right? You can actually be at peace. And all of it is using imagery that these people would have understood if they had been reading their Bibles, right? So, or their Torahs. So, so they would have understood this idea. But what I, as, I, as I thought about this and thought about it, 
it left me a little unsettled because it's great news. Like, I mean, it is awesome, awesome news that this is true. And the good thing for us is we're living on the other side of history. Like, we know what came. We know what happened. We're living in a time that the angels are longing to look at what we, have, what we are getting to experience in Christ. But if you put yourself in the shoes of these people, we can take some application because they didn't know when the Messiah was coming. They didn't know when they would be able to rebuild the temple. They didn't know what was going to unfold. And, and their lives were really tough. I mean, they're dealing with a lot. And so for me, as I put myself in their shoes, I just I couldn't help but get this feeling of hope, but waiting. Like, just waiting, longing like being insecure until that hope could finally be realized. And I don't know if, if, if you've ever sat in a doctor's office waiting room and you are waiting to determine whether or not you're going to get good news or bad news. Has anyone ever had that experience before? You're waiting in that doctor's office. You don't know what the answer is going to be. And you're waiting for like, you know, your appointment's at 11 o'clock and they tell you to get there early and they don't see you to 11.57. <laughs> Right, And in that 57 plus minutes, you're just waiting, right? I mean, I just, I want you to feel this and feel this at this cosmic scale of, of just how unsettling it would be uh, to be waiting. And I, and I want you to know that we're all in some ways waiting, right? We're, we're waiting on the second coming of Christ, but we're waiting in our lives. We're, we're waiting on that unanswered prayer request. You know, we're waiting to... I mean, I think, geez, I think about Jeff and his family and little Natalie. And I, I think about that, that time of waiting that you don't know when this pain will get resolved. You just don't know. And you trust in God and you trust in God and you pray and you pray, but you wait. Uh, there's so many problems that I know, because I know a lot of the things y'all are dealing with. And there's so much waiting that, that I know is happening here. And so just... As we wrap this up today, I, I, I just wanted to give just a little bit of guidance for what to do in the waiting. And the first thing I, I would say is, is what to do in the waiting would be this, is we have to remember that God's given us a command to persevere in the waiting, to persevere in this life. I mean, you think about Paul's words of fighting the good fight right? I have run the race. I have finished the race, right? This idea of perseverance is always key, you know, and I, and I talk about this with so many people, like we are, we are called to persevere to our last breath, but, but we know that we won't have the strength on our own to do it, but God in his grace will provide us the strength to persevere and keep, keep persevering. But the second thing I would say is that I, especially for all you guys here in this room, I do not want you to forget that God may be planning to use you to be the person who might be sitting beside the person who's in that waiting room, right? We're called as Christians to share joy with each other, but also to mourn together, right? To grieve together. We laugh together and we cry together, right? We're patient with each other. We spend time with each other. Right. This faith of ours is not an individual faith on its own. It's a communal faith. And so I just I want you to keep that idea of sitting in that doctor's office waiting on if it's going to be good news or bad news. And there's nothing you can do about it but pray, but have faith, but persevere, 
but, but be committed to stay in that waiting room, right? A lot of you guys may be the people who need to just, even if people don't want it, go sit in the waiting room with them, right? You can't solve the problems, but you can be with them. You can walk through it. And God can provide them peace, can provide you peace as you go through it together. And I would in particular challenge all the men in the room who are retired. If you are retired and you have found for the first time in your life you have a little bit of margin in time, please use this as a call. You don't, do not waste any moment of how God could be using you with this time. I truly believe that, that the people in our church and our congregation who are retired are God's best tools to go and do kingdom work here in our, here in our community. So I just I want to leave you with that um, because I, I want you to probably feel how unsettled they would have felt. They got good news. They knew there was hope. They knew there was hope, but they didn't know when it was coming, right? They didn't know when it was coming. And we know we have hope. We have hope both in this world and the world to come, but we're still waiting, right? We're still waiting. We're still yearning. We're still dealing with things. Be those people who will wait. Make sense? All right, let me pray. We'll get out of here today. Father, I thank you so much uh, for this class. I thank you for these men. And I just want to lift up I know there were a lot of unspoken prayer requests today. There's a lot of guys in that waiting room right now. I ask that you would come and that you would be with them, but you would send your servants to be with them too. Let us be people who care for each other and love each other. Let us not just be with each other in the good times. Let us be with each other in the bad times. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us brothers, you've given us sisters, you've given us this family that we are all called children of God, and that is written in stone. And we thank you for that privilege. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.